Welcome back for another week as we get ready for Shoftim Parak Yudalit. Our learning is dedicated to the Elenish Nodav Kabbat Yaakov Alevi, Lucy Maya, and Rina D, Rufua Shlema, Fatila Batya, Bat Chayotova, Brachli Gaiva, Bat Rechel Kito, Yedidia Chaiman, Avivrit Bachaya, Shalom, Ben Chayasarshan, Elf and Shadokham for all those in need. Um, a, before we start, just a very special thank you to all those that have participated. Um, through dedications, we now have a dedication for our website, for Spotify, which hopefully by the end of Russia, by the end of next week, all the shiurim will be loaded up onto Spotify. Uh, we have a shear sponsor or two for the uh, upcoming year for Tav Shin Pei Dalid. So Baruch Hashem, lots of good news, lots of good stuff. We thank everyone for all of their help. And of course, thank you for learning with us. What, a, what an amazing schos for me uh, to end the year. Uh, with the last year in uh, as Parak Yudalit and knowing that we have, God willing, uh, 50-something shurim in the year ahead of us. So thank you, thank you, thank you. We continue with Parak Yudalit uh, of Shoftim. And, and we kind of like enter into the question of uh, that we left off with at the end of last week. The Shimshon's parents failed him. The very last slide kind of left it out there. Did Shimshon's parents teach him the proper lessons? Did they guide him? Did they coach him? Did they instruct him? Whatever word you want to use, did they do that in order to make him succeed? And, and we, we did leave off with, even if they were successful, even, they might not have had anyone to listen to. You could have the best coach in the world, but if the player is not listening to what the coach says, it's not going to be successful anyway. But I, I want to kind of explore that question just a little bit because I spent the whole week very much bothered. Did Chimshun's parents really fail him? And the suggestion that Chimshun's parents failed him, uh, maybe as a parent is a very difficult thing because I think sometimes we work really hard, or at least we think we work really hard with our children, and we don't necessarily see the results that we want. And then the question is, did, did is it a problem in the parenting and sometimes that is the case but not always so i i want to kind of start off with uh with that question so one theory out there and i think with lichtenstein or moshe lichtenstein which we explored a little bit last week might suggest that they're very passive personalities it's a great great graphic those of you that are not seeing it only listening it's a shame but it is uh it's footsteps over a doormat that says the word welcome with a person's face over it. Passive personalities sometimes become doormats. Is it that Shimshon's parents were kind of like passive people? And so whatever happened, Shimshon walks and steps all over them. That's one possibility. One possibility, not sure, but I think it's something that we could um, potentially think about. And, And again, I'm, I'm not 100% certain that I agree with that. I think that we'll see in this parak that Shimshon's parents do work very hard. So it's a question that we have to kind of put out there. There's another possibility. This week, I once again tried to pick up Daf Yomi. So we'll see, God willing. Uh, so there's a great story. Um, someone said... They came to a Rav and said, I want my child to be a tzaddik. So the Rav said, how old is your child? His parents said, my child is two years old. The Rav said, it's too late. You started too late. You can't start when the child reaches a certain age and say, okay, now I want. There's so much that goes into parenting that starts even before the child is born. 
there's a certain setting up of the whole, a certain personality. And it doesn't mean that there's not potential to constantly grow and evolve. Of course you have that. And if we start too late, it doesn't mean that we can't get to the finish line. It just makes it harder. So that's another possibility. Did Shimshon's parents start too late? Perhaps that's something that we could suggest as we read Perek Yod Dalid in just a moment. That's another possibility. And then the third possibility is that maybe there is another explanation. I think the other explanation is a much fuller analysis of Shimshon, which really starts in earnest in Perek Yod Dalid with his actual um more than just birth, but his actual life. So let's let's start now with the beginning of um, our parak. Vayered Shimshon Timnata. Shimshon goes to Timna. Vayari Shabbat Timnata Plishtim, and he sees a woman there from in Timna from the daughters of the Plishtim. So we probably are thinking to ourselves, I know, I've heard of that place, Timna. Where else? So the Pasuk is in Parshat Vayeshev. Tamar, the daughter-in-law who's banished of Yehuda, who desperately, desperately wants to have children from Yehuda's line and knows she's not getting the younger son, Shayla. She goes home and she sits as an almana betavit, as a uh, widow in her father's home. And she waits, and time passes, and nothing's happening. And she realizes, Yehuda's not calling me. So if I want to have the opportunity to be part of Yehuda's family, I'm going to have to be proactive. So she hears that Chamich, her father-in-law, Olet Timnata, is going up to Timna, la goes so no, to shear his sheep. So we were just told by Gavrid Shimshon, Timnata. Shimshon goes down to Tim. You got to take Tamar more. Oh, let Timnata. He's going to Timna. So, which one is it? Is Timna up? Is Timna down? There's a couple possibilities. One possibility is that there's more than one Timna. There's a Timna that's high up. And so, if you're going there, you're going to be Oleh. And there's another Timna that's low down. So, if you're going to go there, you're going to go down. A second possibility is that Timna might be actually located on a hill or on a mountain. But if you're coming from one side, you're Oleh. If you're coming from the other side, you're Yoreh. Um, and then there is the Gemara's Drash, which the Radak quotes, is Yehuda Shinitaleb Aktiv Be'aliyah. Even though when he goes to Timna, Yehuda's actually going to bottom out. He sleeps with a prostitute. He thinks that Tamar is a zona, and he sleeps with her. It's not really, there's no good way about that. But it's a Yeridal Tzorachaliyah. His his ascent actually happens by his by everything that occurs in Timna because he owns it. So he's Oleh. Timna raises Yehuda up. Whereas Shimshon, but Shimshon, this is the beginning of the end for Shimshon, which is sad because this is really the very beginning of Shimshon. And yet in the very beginning, it is the end. He's Yorit. Okay? A possibility. Now this map over here, Hatanach, everybody knows it's my, the Herzog site with the, the maps of Israel. I love it. I love it. So if you look right around my mouse, there is in bold black, it says Timna. If you, there's two ways to look at the map. There's the biblical map 
which is over here, just Parak Yudalit. The only place that we have in, in Parak Yudalit is Timna. So it tells us where Timna is. It's right there. But you also can overlay the biblical map with the current map. And I think it's very helpful to, to get a sense of where we're dealing with. So this over here, you can see there's the 38. It's lightly outlined, but you've got the 38, and there are the 38. And then there's this white line that goes down there. It starts all the way by Eshtaol. Those of you from Beit Shemesh, or at least familiar with Beit Shemesh, if you're coming from Yerushalayim, when you see Ikea on the right, so that is Eshtaol. And that is the beginning of the Highway 38. It goes through Beit Shemesh right there. Before Big Shemesh, you have Tzora, which is another biblical place that we know, Bein Sarao, Bein Ashtaol. You go a little further and you reach Beit Shemesh. You go a little further, you hit, hit Beit Jamal. Beit Jamal might be the uh, ancient home of Rabbi Gamliel. Jamal, Gamal, Gamliel. And if you go a little bit further down, you'll hit the past Beit Jamal. You'll be able to go into Ramat Beit Shemesh. Um, and you have the stuff that is there as well. And then if you continue out, you can see the 375. The outline of 375 will take you to Tzur Hadassah, Beit uh, Har Elite, and ultimately uh, it will take you to Efrat, which I, I guess I didn't um, go on enough. But those are the places that we're going to have in our Perek, in Yudalit, Tedvav, and Ted Zayin. And over here to the left, you can see Ekron, um, and and further to the uh, further to the west, which is cut off, you would see Ashkelon and Ashdod and Azza, which are the cities that the Plishtim are situated in. So Timna is over here. It is to the left of where the Jews are, and it is much closer to where the Plishtim are. The Plishtim were coastal, and now they're moving in towards the mountains. You could actually see a beautiful uh, topographical uh, display of what the, the hills look like, hills, mountains here. You have the mountains of near Beit Shemesh going to Yerushalayim, Mivaseret, etc. And the Plishtim are slowly moving into there. And it is so important, so important to understand all of that. Now, where is Timna? So Timna is in a uh, it's in a nature area with a beautiful hike in Nachal Sorei. And there is a, uh, a, a tell there, an ancient tell right on top of Timna. I don't know enough of the details about it, but it is definitely something that is on my wanting to go to list. Okay, so that's where he goes. He goes to Timna, and he sees a woman in Timna, from the daughters of the Plishtim. Okay, she seems to be a non-Jewish girl. He goes up, and he tells his father and his mother, he says, Isha plishtim. I saw a Plishti girl there. I want you to take her for me as a wife. That's that's what he says. Vayar Isha plishtim. But he 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 makes it clear he wants this girl. The question is, what's the deal with it? Is it love at first sight? Does he is he infatuated with her? Is there even any conversation between the two of them? What's going on? So the on the screen you have two pictures. You have the picture of a book called Samson's Struggle. Last time 
that I taught Sefer Shoftim many, many years ago, the first cycle of this year, uh, we did not have Rabbi Michael Hatton's full book. It ended after Parakir Gimbal. So we were kind of left in a lurch. What happens to Shimshon? Baruch Hashem, eight years later or so, we now have the full Sefer. So we're, we have the benefit of seeing uh, his take on it. But Samson's Struggle by Rabbi Gershon Weiss is an interesting read. And it's fascinating to see how different they are in their approaches. So here is Rabbi Weiss's point. He says, Vayar He sees the girl, but he doesn't speak to her. There's something about her that captures him, but he doesn't speak to her. It's not lust. That's his argument. So Rabbi Hatton says, what do you mean? There's all the Jewish girls in the world to choose from. And he chooses who? The non-Jewish girl. That sounds like intermarriage. That sounds like basically the thing that we would so badly hope our children would avoid. He seems to embrace it. So what's going on? So I think the big question that we have to understand it, that we have to ask, is did she convert? Did this girl convert? So if you take a look at the, if you, if you listen to the Raul Bag, the Raul Bag says, He's looking for something to have a, to have a complaint in the Plishtim, so that he could beat them up, he could, he could hit, hit at them. Therefore, he takes the fleshly wife. So he, he, he needs some peta to start up the fleshly. Fine. But of course, he says, that's Chazal say that he was Megai. He's a Nazir Lukim. He's a Shofei. How can he marry someone who's not Jewish? Metsuah's love is the same thing. He says, Take her for me as a wife. He wanted to have the opportunity to actually marry her. His parents say, there's not a single Jewish woman out there. You're taking a plishti who is arel, who's uncircumcised. Arel is it's a it's a statement, it's a judgment of the people. That's what they are. They're uncircumcised. They're not like us. But it's not just that they're not like us physically, that they have a foreskin and we cut that off at eight days old. But but our rail is something that we, we view as disgusting. It is something that we view as there's something there's something in their hashkafa, in their philosophies, in their thinking. That's just wrong. That's what you're taking. By over Shimshon of El Aviv, Shimshon says his father, Kai says it to his father, not his, his mother, because he wants the girl taken. And he knows that that's something that his father is going to do. Take this girl for me. She is good in my eyes. So, Gershon Weiss, again, has an interesting take on it. He says that um, 
he worked really hard, Shimshon. We, we have no idea. Because he was born, Ruach Hashem Hechelapamo begins to uh, to ring again in Machnedan, and there is nothing. We don't hear anything at all. But all of a sudden, he's grown up. My wife says, no, he worked so hard on his eyes that he felt that he could see the world from a perspective with glasses of spirituality. And he saw this girl and said, this is my mission. He also points out the fact that this girl is willing to marry him should indicate that she is uh, she's on a pretty high level. She's really, uh, she's putting her life in her own hands by marrying him. And so that's certainly a, a perspective and a possibility. Now, even if we're going to say that she converted, Shimshon is going to end up with two other women as well, also Plishtim. And there is no kichu there. There's no lakach. And so it's a little bit tough. And so there are certainly opinions that are from the perspective that she didn't convert. And then Shimshon was somehow looking for a Plishti girl. And that's really the question. Why? So But his parents didn't know that this is all from God. This is the narrator talking. Shimshon didn't tell his parents that, listen, I got this plan, and this plan requires me to marry a Plishti girl. Because he is looking for a toana, he's looking for a lila, a, a cause. To get at the plishti. Now here's here's the question. And he was looking for a way to get at the plishtim. Who? Who is the he? Is it that his father and mother did not know because Hashem made this happen, that this was all God's plan? And he, Shimshon, was looking for an opportunity to strike out at the Plishtim. Or perhaps God was looking at a opportunity to strike out at the Plishtim. Shimshon didn't necessarily know that that's what was going to happen. But God plants in his mind, marry this girl so that you'll be able to do the mission that I give you. And that's, I think, a very big question. We have to understand that possible. And, I, and I'm not sure which way to read it. Yigal Ariel likes the second reading. He says that this is God-driven. God is looking for an opportunity to strike out at the Plishtim. Okay. Now, we've started the first couple of Psukim. And I want to teach you, everyone, uh, those of you that have been learning with me for longer already know this. I've, I'm a big fan. But those of you that are a little newer to learning with me, might not know this concept yet. There's an idea called a mila ancha, a guiding word. In uh, in literature, we call it a light word. Light word. L-E-I-T-W-O-R-T. Maybe light vart, something like that. Um, and the idea is that within a piece of text, you're going to have a word that repeats itself over and over and over again. And the reason why you're going to have these words over and over again is that the, the author is trying to hint at something. There is a message that's coming through this milah mancha. 
So obviously, when you're reading a, a book, Shakespeare, a, a contemporary book, and you're looking at the, the light word, well, what's coming there is that the author, not through divine providence, but the author wants to convey a certain message. Certainly, when we're talking about the holy books of Tanakh, Shmuel himself wrote Shofet. Shmuel is trying by, put, by choosing certain words over and over again, which he doesn't necessarily have to do. He's trying to point us in a certain direction. And so what I would ask you to do as we're reading for the next couple minutes is keep your eyes. And you could even as I'm talking now, you could look back at the first couple of psukim and you can sneak a peek ahead at the next couple of psukim and see, can you find the guiding word in our text? So that is something to do. So what happens? He says, I want to marry this girl. Shimshon and his father and mother, they go down to Timnah. And they come until there is a, the, Kar, the Karmim, the, uh, the vineyards of Timnah. And there is a roaring lion in his way. So also, what's the deal here? Why We're in the middle of the story. Who cares? Why do we need to know this? Why do we need the story with a lion? It's a good question. Why break up the story? Although it is certainly good drama. And we're also going to be stuck with another question after we read Pasuk Vav. He was going with his parents. He passes the vineyards. The Yushalmi says that he passed by the vineyards. His parents wanted to show him. They took him past the vineyards and said, Shimshon, you are going on a dangerous path. You're playing with fire. Remember, you're not supposed to be doing these things. You want to associate with the Plishtim. The Plishtim are people that are what? They are people of the, the drink. They're people of merriment and not seriousness. You're you're going along the, the wrong lines. So he's with his parents, but all of a sudden there's this lion. But God, his spirit comes over him. Ruach Gibor min Kadam Hashem says the Radak. He has the spirit of God that gives him the strength, and he tears the lion apart the way one would tear a gedi, a goat. I don't know how one does that also with their bare hands, but biyado. And he has no weapon, nothing in his hand. He's empty handed, and he does this. He does not tell his parents what happened. He keeps it a secret. What is going on here? Where are his parents? Why have they dropped out of the story? And also, what's the deal with this lion? And he tears the lion apart. Now, this painting, the picture on the left, um, biblical paintings are, are really interesting to, to look at and to note because you, you get the sense from the author, from the, the painter, what their thinking was. This painting was painted in the late 1400s. Um, and the interesting thing is you can see, it looks like there's vineyards, there's right. Okay, that makes sense. And up the hill would be um, Timna, but he's Vayered. He's going down to Timna. So what's the deal with that? Um, I don't know. So it's, it's a good question. But the fact is that he's grabbing the lion according to, uh, according to this painting. He's riding on the lion. You can see his legs straddling the lion's head. He's ripping it apart. And most of the paintings do convey that picture. 
And the truth is, I have no idea how he did it. It's Hashem. It is with the spirit of God that all of this happens. But the question that I'm really more concerned with is where are his parents? And also, why does he not tell his parents this? So one possibility is that his parents go through the vineyard. It's a shortcut. And he does not. Um, and the reason why he doesn't go through there is because he doesn't want to be tempted. So instead, the lion comes upon him. The Al-Sheikh says that the lion was a warning. The same way the Yerushalmi says that the grapes were a warning by his parents. The Yerushalmi, the Al-Sheikh says, the lion was a warning. Are you out of your mind, Shimsho? What are you doing? You're playing with fire. This is a bad path. Stay away. Why doesn't he tell his parents? Perhaps it's humility. And maybe that's what makes him a leader of the Jewish people. It's that someone that does something like this and then doesn't tell anyone that tells you something about his character. If a person were to come back and be like, you have no idea. I just tore a line apart with my bare hands. It shows a certain arrogance. There's something humble about Shimshon. So those are possibilities. The Malbim. The Malbim says, God, he wanted, God wanted him to real, recognize his strength. He's prepared to win. This is the opposite of the Alshech. This is the encouragement to him. You're about to embark upon your career. You've got it. And the environmental takes it one step further and says, If you're if you're a student of Tanakh and you've learned enough Tanakh, you know that Tanakh is full of symbolism. You're a Navi, you're a leader, and there is a, a symbolic act. Think of Shaul's coat ripping and Shmuel saying, Ah, that's proof that you're not going to make it. You're losing the kingdom, it's gonna to be torn from you. Without weapons, you will defeat the Plishtim. Rav Yigal Ariel says the, the following. He says, The win is only a partial win. There is no limit to the amount of challenges one is going to face as a leader. He says, winning, the ultimate win, is not that you conquer, but it's when you turn your enemy into an ohev, into your beloved. Or you actually take the weapons, the strength of your enemy, and you make it part of you. We're going to see that eventually there's going to be uh, honey that's going to come in there. When the honey comes into the lion's carcass, he sees this as a sign of the future. That's why it becomes the source of his riddle with the Plishtim. Okay, a little bit going ahead there. But yeah, the the win is when you turn your enemy into your beloved. 
I, you know, sometimes at the time of year we're learning, I guess if it was Hanukkah time, Pesach time, I wouldn't think this, but that's really the idea of tshuva. Tshuva Gemura is where I so flip everything around that the same opportunity comes into my hands and I don't fall prey to it. And there is an idea that tshuva ma'ava turns your averot into mitzvot. That, that's the goal. Shimshon's never going to accomplish that. But he looks and sees that the lion, the lion that is the source of his potential downfall, it becomes a source of food. To him, that is proof that God is saying he's doing the right thing. Pasuk Zion. Pasuk Zion. He goes down and he speaks to the woman. Rashi says, about the woman. He doesn't speak to the woman, but he speaks about the woman to her father, whomever. Sudas David says, No. He speaks to her to see, is there anything to her? Until now, she's a pretty face, but he didn't know who is she. Is she is she a wise woman? Is she the right woman? Is she someone who has like the intellectual capacity to be my equal? And he speaks to her and says, "Yes, she is." But Tishar Beinashim shown, and she's good in the eyes of Shimshon. And he he waits a year, and this is also an important point. If I had to guess, there's a note without a name here. If I had to guess, I would give it credit to Rabbi Gershon Weiss, Samson's struggle. He waited a year to show it wasn't just about passion. This is not Tava, Taiva. This is not his, ah, I want her. If you want her to wait a year, it's really, really hard. He comes back a year later, and he wants to see what's going on with my lion. And inside there's a a, a nest of bees and, and honey. So what happens? By your he puts his hand in it. Um, and he eats it. He brings it to his parents and he gives it to them as well. He doesn't say that he got it from the carcass of a lion. So why why doesn't he tell him? Why is this like hush hush? It's a secret. So one of them, a farshim, I can't remember who, says that it's because it was tummy. And he did not want to reveal to his parents that he was eating something from a tummy source. That Mikra has a very simple explanation. He says that this is going to become the riddle that he is going to use against the Plishtim shortly. And if he told his parents, then they would know the answer. And he didn't want to put them in a position where someone could try to get to squeeze the answer out of them. And his father goes down to the woman, and he makes a party for Shimshon. Because that's what the boys did. Interestingly, most weddings, when we think about weddings, although obviously if you're reading the screen, you're going to say, no, that's not what you mean. But most weddings are times of joy. Yet for Shimshon, it's not. The wedding, in a certain sense, is his... Um, it, it's, it's a funeral of sorts because it's the end of his life as part of the Jewish people. And so the detachment from his people, it's hard. Now that might be part of his plan and there are Mepharshim that say that's part of his plan. This is all um, a way to become enmeshed with the Plishtim. 
But if that's the case, he's really saying goodbye to his previous life with starting his new life. The Abarbanel says they force him to make a party. He's reluctant. This is not something that he really wants to do. Again, all in the same line as it's part of a bigger plan. When they see him, they appoint 30 men, and these 30 men are intended to be his, um, his wedding party, and they're supposed to take care of him properly. Says that, Mikra, the 30 men didn't take care of him properly, so he seeks vengeance. So how does he seek vengeance? He says, I want to make I'm going to give you a riddle. You have until Sheva Brachu. So this is still before the wedding. So there's time plus all of the seven days of the feast. If you can answer this question, and I'm going to give you 30, uh, 30 garments and 30 robes or 30 blankets, you're going to, you're going to do well. But in low Tufu, like but if you can't figure it out, then I am going to get from you 30 sets of clothing. They said, bring it on. Let's hear your riddle. Now, the Bayalic Israel says the following. He says, weddings can be awkward. Yes, you're, you're talking about two families that don't know each other. Think about the difference between let's say, a bris, a bar mitzvah, and ultimately a wedding. At a bris, basically all the guests that are there, you know. They're your friends, your family, your community. By the time you get to the bar mitzvah, it's a little bit different because it's still your friends and family, but now your child is old enough to have his own friends. You don't necessarily know his, his uh, all of his friends. Comes the wedding, and it's like the most common thing you say to someone at a wedding, you don't know who they are, is, I just had this happen to me at a wedding recently. And uh, the person then started to speak to me for a good 15, 20 minutes. Uh, thank God, Sully Furman took a phone call and was able to uh, get us out of that uh, conversation. Nice guy, but we would have probably been there for quite a bit more. But the question you ask a person at a wedding is, what side are you on? I don't know who you are. I'm on the bride side. Are you on the, are you on the groom side? Weddings are awkward because you don't really know the other people there. So we do things to kind of ease things and make things uh, a little bit calmer. I know that there's probably a few people thinking that's why there's a bar at the wedding. Yeah, it also eases the tension if one drinks and then kind of loosens up a little bit. But Google, Google, our source for today, has crazy ideas, the top ideas for wedding entertainment. I found two websites. One had 43 different ideas and one had 23 ideas. These are just seven of the ones that I thought were fascinating. Have an alpaca petting zoo at the, at the, at the, uh, at the wedding. Imagine you have two alpacas, bride and groom hat, and they're walking around. You can, you can pet the alpaca. It is therapeutic. Calms down, takes out the tension. Trapeze artists. You have these people swinging on the trapeze at the wedding. Certainly gets people in a, in a different mood. Synchronized swimming. 
you have a pool, the chuppah is, is uh, the chuppah is poolside, and instead of focusing on the uh, the chuppah, and oh my gosh, how many people are walking down? They're synchronized swimmers, beautiful. Video games, retro, of course, only 1980s games. Leave Mad Libs on every table. I actually thought it was cute. A driving range. Could you imagine Hassan and Kala are taking forever to come out afterwards and you're like, oh, I just want the first dance to happen to it. No, you wouldn't think that way. You, you go compete with your friend, the people at your table to see, can you drive it 200 yards, 300 yards? Amazing. Fortune tellers. Practical. Is this marriage going to last? Is dessert going to happen before midnight? Good, practical things you do. But why are you doing all these things? Because it eases the tension and makes the two sides, the two different families that are coming together, it helps them come together. And nowadays, it's commonplace. You go to a Shadowgropolis, what do you have? There are games that people play. Same concept. Listen to what the Dat Mikra says. Mireim. Reim chaveirim belashon yachid meira. So Mireim are friends, and Meira is what? So they appointed a group of people that would be the Chavra of the Chassan. And they had to take care of all the details. And they had to take care of every single piece, make sure it's all done. And then they're able to tell funny stories and they're able to share all of the moments at Sheva Brachos, at the wedding with the family. That is what's supposed to happen, but it didn't happen. They didn't do that. But the plishti way was that there were riddles and jokes and, and, and merriment that happened along the way. So Shimshon jumps at that opportunity and says, I'm going to also do that. I'm going to give you guys a riddle. He says the following. From the food came another food. And from the straw came out sweet. I, I had the uh, the privilege of davening behind Adam Gadol. Um, an Adam Gadol for many years on Rosh Hashanah Yom Kippur. And uh, on the back of his palace, and his Ataro is a quote, Me'az Yatsamato, a fiery person, yet the sweetest smile. Me'az Yatsamato, and from the strong comes the sweet. For three days, again, this is still before the wedding, they have no idea what the riddle is talking about. They can't figure it out. So the question is, is this riddle possible to solve? Now, he's basing it upon the what? The thing that he saw. And what is that thing that he saw? It's that the lion's carcass now has honey in it. From one food comes another. From the strong came out the sweet. The question is, Can is this possible? Can one even figure this one out? Says Das Mikra, yes, you could figure it out. If the Shoshvinim, if those 30 guys had come with him and then gone back with him home, they would have passed along the way. And what would they have seen? They would have seen 
the carcass of the lion. And they were sent him, Shimshon, what gives? Why did you go this way? And he would have said, do you know what happened? A year ago, on my way to meet this woman, I was attacked by a lion and I tore it apart with my bare hands. And then they would have said, wow. And he would have said to him, my thinking is, He's punishing them. Why? Because they didn't take care of it. That says the Das Mikra is what's going on. But really, if you think about it, it's still not solvable. A riddle only is solvable if you have clues within it to answer it. When uh, when my kids were younger, we had this wonderful mailman, Greg. Greg would stop by on Shabbos, uh, and he would jump off the mail. And my kids were outside playing, or they would see the door open when he was there, and they would run out and they'd hide him. And he would tell them riddles. And they loved his riddles because they didn't figure him out. But afterwards, they were like, oh, yeah, that makes sense. That was that that is like how it works, except that my my one of my very young kids at the time would come in and she would tell riddles to everyone. And people would have I have no idea. She'd be like, what's well, blue and green and purple and yellow and orange and green and blah, 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 blah. And nobody would have any idea what the answer is to her question. Why? Because her riddles didn't make any sense. There was no logic to figure it out. So what's the deal with this riddle? Seems very, very, very difficult to understand. So what happens? It's on the seventh day. Abarbanel says the seventh day of week one. They haven't even got married yet. They say um, get it out of your husband. And find out what the what the uh, riddle means. Or we're gonna burn your house and your father's house hello did you call this guy so he can uh he could uh inherit us now really if you think about it what was on at stake for these guys each one of them is going to lose a piece of clothing about a couple bucks and they're so upset about it so what did they say they say you better figure it out we're going to burn down your family's house and kill your whole family but taste now i want you to i want you to look again not so much for a milamancha but there's a subtle message in her words. She said, you hate me. You hate me. That's really what you want to hear from your wife during Shabbat Brachos. You've been married for all of a couple hours, a couple of days. And she says, you never really liked me. That's what the Malum says. You never loved me. You set up this riddle before we were even married. And you didn't tell it to me? Why didn't you tell me? My mother and father, probably not the greatest answer to say to your uh, to your your wife for a few days. I didn't even tell my parents. So what's her response going to be? But but don't you love me more than your parents? She cried for seven days. Could you imagine he has to listen to his wife crying for seven days? And then on the seventh day, he he finally gives in and he tells her. The Ralbag said that how did he get it out of her? Or how did she get it out of him, rather? That she waited till he was interested in her. And when he was interested in her, he said, I'm not having relations with you unless you tell me the answer. So here it is. He's newly married. He's married this woman that's Yashar Beinav. Probably she's beautiful in his eyes too. And he wants to have relations with her. And it's just not on the table. Why? Because he says, I'm not interested. 
not doing it. If she says, I'm not interested, I won't, I won't until you tell me the answer to the riddle. So what happens? He finally gives in. Now listen to what, what she says. Right? This riddle to B'nai Ami. They're my people. She says it once or twice in the story. But her people. There is a clear distinction. They're not Shimshon's people. Now, I asked for the Milah Mancha at the beginning. I hope by now you had enough time to figure that. The Milah Mancha is father and mother. There is a constant father, mother, father, mother, father, mother in this whole story. And now you have Ami. I think that there's a certain tension here. It's two opposite forces that are pulling. On the one hand, Shimshon has his parents that represent his faith and his tradition. And Shimshon is being pulled by that. And on the other hand, he has the, the plishtim that are pulling on the other end. But it's interesting. It's interesting that it's so clear that she says, you're not one of us. And that's a veiled message in her words. Now listen to what happens. At the very end, it's before the sun goes down on the seventh day. The people come to him and say, Mama tok midvash, what is sweeter than honey, and what is stronger than a lion? It is the dvash, the honey that is grown in the carcass of the lion that you are referring to. So he says, if you hadn't plowed with my with my young calf, you would not have found the answer to my riddle. Probably also things you don't want to say in Sheva Brachos about one's newly married spouse. What's going on here? Ravigal Ariel says that they knew already at the beginning of the seventh day, but they wait until the very last moment. When Shimshon thinks he's going to win, that's when they come and swoop in. There are there are teams that are on the cusp of winning a game and then with like 1.1 second left in the game, they lose. Could you imagine? Everybody thinks the game is wrapped up. Everybody thinks they won. And then they lose in the last minute. Shimshon thinks there's no way they're going to get it. And then they come at the last minute and they tell him that. It is painful. So Hashem Again, the Spirit of God comes upon him. He goes down to Ashkelon. He kills 30 men. He takes their chalitzotam. And uh, he gives them their clothing. And interestingly, here it's called chalitzot. When, when at the beginning in the deal, it's sadin. And what's the other word that we have for it? Um, sadin and chalitzot begadim. Here we have not chalifot, chalitzot. Um, chalitzot are uniforms, Rabbi Alex Israel says. They're soldiers. Perhaps I think you could say that there's a subtle message here. He's saying your army doesn't scare me. Look, I just wiped out 30 of your soldiers. What's going on here? What in the world is doing? So one possibility is that he he has to do all this because he needs a toana. He needs a reason to get at the plishtim. And they're looking at him saying, you intermarried. The Jews aren't going to consider you Jewish. You really want to be like one of us. But you're you're upset. And because you got upset, 
That's why you struck out. Shimshon is doing this all according to that possibility as a way of striking out. But he's doing it in a way that he's a lone wolf. And as a lone wolf, nobody will say this is he's he's acting as a Jew. He's acting as his own person. So therefore, there could be no repercussions on his family. And that's one possibility. But perhaps there's another answer. Perhaps the answer is that sometimes the best plan is to have not no plan at all. No, I don't think that's a good idea. I think there should always be a plan. Um, I once saw a great quote hung in my office when I taught for years. Uh, plan A, B, Z. There's a reason why there are 26 letters in the alphabet. There should be many, many, many plans. But sometimes the best plan is to have no plan at all. Shimshon has no plan. Why does he have no plan? Because Shimshon doesn't plan on doing all this. He sees this girl and he wants to marry her. He doesn't know what's going to happen next. Shimshon is impulsive. And when Shimshon gets angry, the things that happen sometimes are well beyond his control. That's another possible way of looking at this whole story and at this whole parrot. Now, I'm not sure which one you'll accept. I'm not sure if you're going to like the, the lone wolf and that's what he's trying to do, or the fact that Shimshon is impulsive and he is aggressive and he has anger issues, that that's all part of his problem. All possibilities. I want to leave you with the, the following. I don't think any of these answers, going back to our big question at the beginning, is it that his parents are passive, so that they didn't do a good job? It seems like they tried. They tried. Maybe there's something else here at play. And we won't be able to fully appreciate that until next week when we see Parak Tedba. So, in Yerat Hashem, we will continue next week after Rosh Hashanah, the first year of the new year, um, and, uh, and we'll be able to explore it a little bit more. I want to take this opportunity, if you're watching this on Friday, because it'll be posted earlier this week, before Rosh Hashanah, to wish everyone a Kassibah Chesit And if you're listening to this afterwards, you should have also Kassibah Chesit Tova. You should have a wonderful year. You should be able to continue to learn together. And God willing, next week, we'll explore Shimshon a little bit more. Thank you so much for joining us, and thank you for walking in the ways of the prophets. Have a great week.